Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. We continue in our study in the book of Genesis. This is that exciting portion of Genesis I've been telling you about and you've been anticipating, salivating over. It's known as genealogy. Genealogy. It's glorious genealogy. The title of this message today, the title of the message from Genesis chapter 10 is the historic origin of the nations of this earth. The historic origin of the nations of this earth, otherwise known as the table of nations. The historic origin of the nations of this earth, otherwise known as the table of nations. What is the table of nations? Well, it's what you find in Genesis chapter 10. What is the table of nations? The table of nations is a list found in Genesis 10 that includes the list of the founders of the 70 nations descended from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The list includes 26 descendants of Shem, 30 descendants of Ham, and 14 descendants of Japheth. While some interpret this list of descendants as exhaustive, many understand this list as not intended to include every descendant from Noah. As with other biblical genealogies, this list appears to include representative figures to bring readers from Noah to Abraham. Where are or were these nations? Some of these nations have been easily identified. Others remain somewhat obscure or even unknown. But there is much that we can look to in Genesis 10 and understand in light of history and archaeology and see how the nations have descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, even down to the nations of this day. Let's read the chapter, and then we'll break it down together. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togamah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim. And from these, the coastland peoples, the Gentiles, were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, and to their nations. Let me just stop you now from your applause for my correct pronunciation of all these names. Just hold it till the end, please. Now, please bear with me as my tongue labors to pronounce all of these names. Verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Ananim, Lehabim, and Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, and Kazluhim, from whom come the Philistines, and Kaphtorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite. 
the Hivite and the Archite and the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zimmerite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. And then you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lesha. And these were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And the children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxed, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxed begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one of them was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Shalaph, Hazar, Mavath, Jerah, and Hadoram, Uzzel, Dikla, Obel, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go toward Sephar and the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, and their lands according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations and their nations. And from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood." Well, if you didn't break a sweat, I did. <laughs> a glorious family, a glorious history of the family of Noah descending through his three sons, becoming the nations of this earth. Genesis 10, verse 1. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons were born to them after the flood. So, These three sons and their three wives were on the ark with Noah and his wife. And after the flood, these sons had their sons and daughters. And this is the account of those sons and all the nations that proceeded forth from them. The famous non-Christian archaeologist William F. Albright wrote this about Genesis chapter 10. Quote, The 10th chapter of Genesis stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples and genealogical framework. The table of nations remains an astonishing, accurate document. He is a secular, non-believing historian and archaeologist, and he recognizes what all honest Historians and archaeologists recognize is that the table of nations is the most ancient and true record of the history of mankind, where mankind came from and the nations that we know of today, the various people groups. Again, William F. Albright was not a Christian or a Bible believer, and he explains his shock regarding his continual discovery of the Bible's historic and archaeological veracity with these words. During these 15 years, my initially rather skeptical attitude toward the accuracy of Israelite historical tradition has suffered repeated jolts as discovery after discovery confirmed the historicity of details which might reasonably have been considered legendary. And so he came to the land of the Bible 
And he was aware of what the Bible said, and he thought it was mere legend. But as he studied history and dug history from the earth, literally, he found again and again that his presupposition that the Bible was mere legend was jolted. It was blown up. And the reality was, is the Word of God is the true historical account of the nations of man, and that this is literally the table of nations. Toward the end of his archaeological career, in his article titled, History, Archaeology, and Christian Humanism, he said, Thanks to modern research, we now recognize the Bible's substantial historicity. The narratives of the patriarchs of Moses and Exodus of the conquest of Canaan, of the judges, the monarchy, exile, and restoration have all been confirmed and illustrated to an extent that I should have thought impossible 40 years ago. And so as he dug in the earth and spent his life's career laboring to dig up true history, he finally pronounced that the word of God is a gloriously accurate declaration of true history. Now, his book title, History, Archaeology, and Christian Humanism, gives way to the fact that he's not actually a Christian. And if you do further research into his life, unfortunately, it it does not seem that he ever truly repented, confessed Christ as Lord, and was saved. While spending his life as an archaeologist proving the veracity of the Bible, how sad to be so close to the truth and to miss the truth, Jesus Christ. One commentator on Genesis 10 hardly and dogmatically wrote, Christians should not ignore this chapter, the fundamental teaching of which is that all the nations of the earth are descended from a single ancestor and that therefore all the peoples of the earth are of one blood, Acts 17.26. There are no critical difficulties whatever in Genesis 10, For this record is the only document that has descended through the centuries to shed light upon the particular facts here related. How does one contradict something with nothing? Satan did the only thing he could do, that is, resort to the imaginations of wicked men. Those imaginations, of course, being the only source of such alleged prior documents as P and J. The higher critics come to the scripture and say, well, there were source documents, P and J, that make this up, and it's not the true record of God, so on and so forth. He goes on, until Satan can produce those documents and submit them to the same kind of examination that the Bible has encountered, they should not enter in any manner whatsoever into the interpretation of these pages. We cannot believe that there ever were any such documents. It is impossible to prove the existence of documents that have never been seen, that have never received even one mention throughout the ages of human history, and the content of which has never been determined. In the light of such facts, and these facts cannot be denied, how futile and worthless is the pedantic gobbledygook concerning which verses of this chapter belong either to P or J or to RP or to XYZ. What is written here is the unique source of all the information humanity has concerning the origins of the nations. And let me expand it. What is written here in Genesis tells us the origin of everything, the origin of the cosmos and all life in it. And it stands as the accurate record of all that it speaks to. God was there, and God inspired his penmen 
to put pen to page and record the true history of the creation of the heavens and the earth, the fall of man, the global judgment and a worldwide flood, and the foundation of the nations, and much more. With perfect veracity, inerrant, and the same God that inspired it through the power of the Holy Spirit preserved it down to this very day. Pastor John MacArthur opens his discussion of Genesis 10's genealogy with these somewhat comical words that then turn quite sober. Quote, genealogies are very popular today, and you can find a number of websites on the internet where you can trace your genealogy. The most notable source of genealogical information, of course, is the Mormon church, but people seem to be compelled to find their origin from the adopted child who wants to find birth parents to those who would like to go back into their family tree and find out what their heritage really is, it seems to be somehow important as a contribution to the case for self-esteem and this need for people to feel good about themselves. And they can feel good about themselves boosting up their psychological self-esteem if they can find that they come from some important family or if there's someone in the background who himself or herself was important. This whole genealogical effort could lead to a new genre of bumper stickers, I think. Like, quote, my forefathers were Philistines. <laughs> or like, quote, Goliath was in my family. Or, quote, I come from a long line of Hittite kings. Or here's a good one, quote, my ancestors killed your ancestors. <laughs> well, one thing is for sure, in your heritage file, you descended from the family of Noah. You could put that in a bumper sticker. Descendant of Noah, son of Adam, daughter of Eve. And so you can say, my family survived the great flood. Put that on (laughs) your bumper. There's a boast. It is another one of those things that the Hebrews calls a uh, toldoth. It is another genealogy or generation is the word in English. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. These are the records, or literally in Hebrew, these are the toldoth of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the genealogy of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's a familiar device used throughout the book of Genesis, back in chapter 2, verse 4. This is the record of the heavens and the earth, or the toldoth of the heavens and the earth, the actual historical account. That's the first one that is a toldoth, or a record. In chapter 5, verse 1, this is the toldoth, or the generation of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, this is the generation of Noah, or the toldoth of Noah. Now we come to chapter 10. This is the generation, the toldoth of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Genesis is largely broken down by generations of people. First of all, the heaven and the earth being generated, then Adam, then the next major person, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And there will be more to come as the book is broken up into those patterns of records of generations. Pastor MacArthur continues, Now, I want to also note for you that the listing in this section is just inherently sad. It's inherently tragic. We do have a specific indication in verses 8 to 12 about a rebel against God who built the city of Babel. His name was Nimrod, and I'll say more about that. He's the only individual person about whom much is said, and he demonstrates for us in a specific illustration that humanity is sinking again into rebellion and sin and rejection of God. He is a specific illustration of where humanity is going. Dropped right in the middle of the chapter, verses 8 through 12, is this man Nimrod who built Babel. And we'll learn a lot more about Babel when we get to chapter 11. He is a specific individual illustration of the deterioration of man. 
very soon. The son of Ham was Cush. The son of Cush was Nimrod. This is Noah's grandson who leads a worldwide rebellion against the true and living God who was the creator and judge. The chapter is genealogy, but not in the sense of Genesis 5 and 11, which trace lineage from father to son or grandson. Rather, it contains individual names, place names, and many names of tribes or people groups, some of which may be derived from the patriarch of that group. Thus, it is not just tracing individual histories, but the development of nations, especially as they related to Israel at the time of the conquest of Canaan. It isn't a complete catalog of all nations, but rather a list that would help Israel understand the origins of the people they would encounter during the conquest, especially in light of the blessings and cursings of Noah's oracle in chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. End of quote from Pastor MacArthur. This is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the historic origin of the nations of this world, the 70 nations that came from Noah's descendants. Let us look to verse 2. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togomar. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now let me say this before we break down some of these individuals. There are certain names that stand out, certain names that we can connect with nations more readily than others, and other names that we know little of or nothing at all, and so we'll, we'll just mention them in passing. But what you notice in each of these sections, these three sections beneath the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, each of them speak of division, separation, languages, and nations. Each of them allude to chapter 11, which is to come, the Tower of Babel, where God divides the nations of man. You find in verse 5 here, from these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, and everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. This relationship between Genesis chapter 10 and 11 is similar to the relationship between Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In Genesis chapter 1, you have a straightforward account of God's creation of the heavens and the earth, including mankind, including critters. And in Genesis chapter 2, you have kind of a commentary and explanation or an expounding upon Genesis chapter 1. We go much deeper into critters and mankind being created, certainly Adam and Eve there in chapter 2. And in a similar way, here in chapter 10, we have this genealogical count, and it references separation, but the separation isn't explained. The division isn't explained. The languages, how do you get languages from one family? Presumably, they all spoke the same language. I know some of your kids speak different languages. Only mother can understand, right? It happens with all families, all kids. And some of them learn pig Latin and other strange things. Ubby, bubby, or whatever that was, I forget. My kids can still talk in this, and I'm like, what are you saying? 
they, they move the letter from the first letter of each word to the last. I don't know what they do with it, but somehow their minds were um, broken as young children. And, and they, they can speak like this, and, and uh, it's, it's a phenomenon. It really truly is. But that's not what we're talking about here. This isn't children talking in childish uh, gibberish, uh, yet to be refined and become adult gibberish. Um, this isn't uh, children playing fun games, uh, moving letters around in words. Uh, so parents can't understand what they say. <clears throat> no, this is actual distinct and sometimes radically distinct languages. And that's what the Lord did as a judgment upon mankind in chapter 11. And we'll hear much more about that next time, or at least next time we're in Genesis. That will not be next week. But we find here in verse 5, from these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands. From the, so from the sons of Japheth, we get coastland peoples who are called Gentiles, who are separated into lands, everyone according to his language. And once the Tower of Babel takes place, once God breaks up man's uprising against him, by confusing the languages of man, the Different groups, the different language groups separate themselves quite naturally and wander off to various portions of the earth and become the nations of the earth. That's the testimony of Scripture. And interestingly enough, after years of study, language specialists have found that indeed all language comes back to a root there is a root source. Kind of like after years of study, we have found genetically that we all come back to a root source. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. And then bottlenecked at the flood, all descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. And so the Word of God, whether you're speaking linguistically or speaking genetically, the Word of God continues to be supported by true science. All true science comports with the word of God. So let us break down the descendants of Japheth. The sons of Japheth. He was the father of the Indo-European peoples, those stretching from India to the shores of Western Europe. They are each linked by linguistic similarities that often seemed invisible to the layman, but are much more obvious to the linguist. Gomer, the first listed. Gomer, from this son of Japheth came the Germanic peoples, from whom came most of the original peoples of Western Europe. These include the original French, Spanish, and Celtic settlers. Not the Celtics, not the basketball team. The Celtic folk. Not quite as tall. Magog, Tubal, and Meshech. These settled in the far north of Europe and became the Russian peoples. Madai. From this son of Japheth came the ancient Medes, and they populated what are now Iran and Iraq. The peoples of India also came from this branch of Japheth's family. Javan, from this son of Japheth came the ancient Greeks whose seafaring ways are described in Genesis 10, verse 5. And then in chapter 10, verse 3, we find the sons of Gomer. And so we've just dealt with verse 2, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. Now verse 3, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz. From this son of Gomer came the people who settled north of Judea into what is called the Fertile Crescent. Togerma. From this son of Gomer came the 
Armenians, the people group, not the doctrinal group known as Armenians. And that's a mistake often made. Armenians, the people group, not the theological group or doctrinal group. Uh, in uh, northern Washington, my parents live in a small town with an Armenian church. And I'm quite certain some folks show up thinking they're going to convert it to Calvinism. <laughs> but it's an Armenian church, the people group, <clears throat> not the theological disposition. And they come as descendants of Togermah. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, we have the sons of Javon. The sons of Javon were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples, the Gentiles, were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Javan were uh, geographic names that spring from these names in this chapter abound. Linguists have no trouble seeing the connection with the sons of Javan, Kittim, and Cyprus, Rodanim and Rhodes, Gomer and Germany, Meshech and Moscow, Tubal and Toblisk. These are the descendants of Japheth. And we move quickly to verse 6, the sons of Ham. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. You know how that's said? Well, in their day it was said. It was the same. Verse 10, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Who went to Assyria? Nimrod went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kelah. And resin between Nineveh and Kelah, that is the principal city. So Kelah is this principal city, this important city, like the capital of Nimrod's kingdom. Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrushim, and Kalushim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtorim. It's nice to have the internal commentary there to tell us who, this, who these descendants became, what people group came from these descendants with the Philistines and the Kaphtorim there at the end of verse 14. Verse 15, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and Zimarite, and the Hemathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go to Gerar as far as Gaza, and then as you go towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboam as far as Lesha. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. Verses 6 through 20, the sons of Ham. Again, we'll start at the end. We'll start at the end. Verse 18, afterwards, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. Verse 20, these were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And it's not explained, as I said earlier, how it is that they became dispersed. It's not explained how they ended up in separate nations with distinct and separate languages. Again, at times radically distinct languages, and yet the linguists tell us that they have a common root, even if it's not readily understandable to the unlearned. 
and unstudied. So we have the descendants of Ham, and we'll spend a bit more time with the descendants of Ham. We're really going to ham it up here. Trying to make genealogy fun. (laughs) Work with me. The descendants of Ham, verse 6. The sons of Ham, the youngest son of Noah, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The descendants of Ham are the peoples who populated Africa and the Far East. Cush. Apparently, this family divided into two branches early. Some founded Babylon, notably Nimrod. Others founded Ethiopia. Mizraim. This is another way the Bible refers to Egypt. Put refers to Libya in the region of North Africa, west of Egypt. Canaan refers to peoples who originally settled the land that God would later give by covenant to Israel. The sons of Cush, verses 7 through 12, the sons of Cush. So we have the sons of Ham, now we have the sons of the sons of Ham. Verses 7 through 12, the sons of Cush. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan, and Cush begot Nimrod. Cush begot Nimrod. Let us focus in on him. We know little of the others. The son of Cush, worthy of note, is Nimrod. He was a mighty one on the earth. And I remember reading this as a young Christian. I thought, yeah, I like mighty men. But no, wrong kind of mighty man. Not a mighty man for the glory of God. Not a mighty man for the defense of the innocent. A mighty man in evil. He was mighty, but not in a good way. He ruled over Babel which was the first organized rebellion of human beings against God. The name Nimrod itself means let us rebel. Cush named his son, let us rebel. That's the heart of man. Cush knew the one true God. He knew him and hated him and rebelled against him. Cush knew of God's judgment on mankind that he wiped out everything in which there was the breath of life, not just mankind, but critters too, that were not on the ark, his grandfather's ark. And yet Cush named his son, let us rebel. That's the heart of man after the fall. Total depravity. Like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, The context shows that this is not a compliment of Nimrod. The idea is that Nimrod was an offense before the face of God. The notable preacher and commentator James Boyce says this, quote, This is not talking about Nimrod's ability to hunt wild game. He was not a hunter of animals. He was a hunter of men, a warrior. It was through his ability to fight and kill and rule ruthlessly that his kingdom of the Euphrates Valley city-states, was consolidated. He's the first king who founded the first kingdom, and he founded it against God. Let us rebel against God. The first king of the first kingdom of men was an act of rebellion against God. That is the nature of mankind. That's what you see in Psalm 2, is it not? That's what you see in the testimony of Psalm 2. The nations of this earth gathering together against God and His Christ, the anointed King. That rage against God, that hatred of God, that rebellion against God 
has been taking place since Adam and Eve fell. And you see it in the firstborn son. You see it in Cain and Abel, in the murder, in the first family. And it's continued down through the ages. A Jerusalem Targum. Anybody read a Targum lately? Probably not. A Targum is an ancient Aramaic paraphrase of Hebrew Scripture. Kind of like uh, the Living Bible. An ancient Aramaic paraphrase says this of Nimrod. He was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. For he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore it is said, as Nimrod, the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. And so ultimately, leave the one true God and follow me as your God. Louis Ginsburg, a prominent Jewish rabbi and Talmud scholar, quotes from a Jewish legend saying, The great success that attended all of Nimrod's undertakings produced a sinister effect. Men no longer trusted in God, but rather in their own prowess and ability, an attitude to which Nimrod tried to convert the whole world. Notable Christian scholar Adam Clark said this of Nimrod, quote, Hence, it is likely that Nimrod, having acquired power, used it in tyranny and oppression, and by rapine and violence founded the domination which was first distinguished by the name of a kingdom on the face of the earth. How many kingdoms have been founded in the same way in various ages and nations from that time to the present, from the nimrods of the earth, God deliver the world. Pastor John MacArthur has this to say regarding Nimrod. In the middle of this genealogy of Ham, or this flow of families, We are introduced to this Nimrod person, and he's really important because this is the first time in the Bible that the word kingdom is used. There's never been a kingdom before. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon. The beginning of a kingdom was Babylon. He's he's the world's first king, the first world empire. Even the Lord recognized his power. Verse 9, quote, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Even the Lord noted his tremendous power, first great world king who built the first great world empire. And we'll find out when we get to chapter 11 that the world empire called Babel was idolatrous and anti-God and rebellious and wicked. Now, when it says he was a mighty hunter, it doesn't mean he was a hunter of animals. He was a killer of men. A better way to translate that is he was a mighty warrior. He was a mighty soldier. This great grandson of Noah, grandson of righteous Ham, wielded deadly power, ruled ruthlessly right in the middle of the Euphrates Valley, and no doubt conquered all kinds of people and consolidated families and people groups and tribes into his great Babel. Great in power, great in sin, great in idolatry, great in defiance of God. This was the first real city of man in the new world built for man's glory. It was a preview of a later city called Babylon which is a preview of the final Babylon that will be built by the Antichrist at the end of human history. Nimrod built Babel. Nebuchadnezzar, a Nimrod-like man, built Babylon. And the Antichrist will build the final Babylon. By the way, Nimrod's name in Hebrew, rebel, rebel, or literally let us rebel. And all the places of this kingdom 
named, I won't go over them, verses 10 to 12, see all those names. They stretch from the northernmost part of the Mesopotamian Valley at Nineveh down to the Persian Gulf and the southernmost point at Iraq and all the area in between. This was a massive kingdom ruled by a wicked king, Nimrod. So we've heard a bit about Babel, and we'll hear more in chapter 11. But I want to touch on one detail here, uh, the city of Calah. Do you know the importance of the city of Calah? Probably not. What should you know about this forgotten city that Nimrod built, the, the city he said that was the principal city? While Calah is usually overshadowed by Babel and Nineveh, the noteworthy city of Calah is one of those that prove the historical accuracy and veracity of the Bible. For many years, skeptical archaeologists and historians said that the Bible is in error and untrustworthy because there was no city named Calah. It never existed. And if it was a principal city, as the Bible claims in Genesis 10:12, then there should be some historical record or archaeological record somewhere. Now, it should be of no surprise to any of you, it should be of no surprise to any Christian who holds to the inspiration, inerrancy, and preservation of Holy Scripture that in 1845, Sir Austin Henry Laird discovered the ruins of this city, proving once and for all that it did exist in the region of northern Iraq. In the city known today as, get this, the name today, Nimrud. It's named Nimrud. Some of the records that were uncovered showed that the city was very wicked and rebellious, that it was wiped out completely, not only from the face of the earth until archaeologists uncovered it, but also from the memories of history. Cala was a principal city, one of the greatest of its time, but for thousands of years, nobody remembered it. Nobody even knew that it had existed This is what God can do to a wicked nation and a wicked city and a rebellious people. He can blot them off the face of the earth and remove their memory from among men. Sin and rebellion against God is a serious thing. And no matter how great a person or a nation can become, if they are living in a way that is contrary to God and rebellion against God, let us rebel, judgment will come upon them. Oh, friends, Nimrod is much like many of the politicians today, much like much of our population today here in the United States of America. Our united cry essentially is, let us rebel. And that will not long stand. We can call it American pride as we wave our rainbow flags and celebrate perversion. But that pride, that rebellion will bring the wrath of God. And God will destroy America like he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah before us, like he destroyed Calah before them and wipe us from the earth. The only thing that will save America from certain judgment and utter destruction is a revival, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is you and I believing God and obeying God. Going, therefore, to make disciples. This city, our city, that boasts being the most atheist city in America, we live in Calah. We live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it will be wiped from the face of the earth unless it and all the individual men, women, and children in it 
are brought to repentance and faith in Christ. This united rebellion will be put down. God is a just judge, and he is angry with the wicked every day. He is long-suffering, but at his own appointed time, he suffers no longer. And Sodom and Gomorrah and Kelah, the city that didn't exist, it was wiped from the face of the earth, and the memory of man, they are testimony to that fact. Oh, that we would be like Jonah, not in heart, but in deed. Jonah did not want to go. He went unwillingly as God had him become fish food and then spit him out on the beach where he belonged that he might go preach to the Ninevites. Yet God in his mercy saved that rebel city, that city that without the preacher Jonah, would have been wiped from the face of the earth. Oh, that we would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We continue. The sons of Mizraim, we really know little about. Genesis 10, 13 through 14. uh, They are just listed there, and history and archaeology tell us little, except that right there in the text, they uh, became the Philistines. The Philistines, the notorious Philistines, which brings me... To another sub-point, as later in the spring of the year when kings are to go to war, Saul went to war and his army with him, and they stopped short on the field of battle because there was this vast array, this vast army of Philistines, and they had giants, and one particular giant named Goliath. And so there they stood quaking in their armor day after day, stalling, fearing, refusing to go to battle. They had armor, they had swords, they had an army, but they would not leave the camp for the glory of God, for the advancement of His kingdom in the earth, until a boy named David came upon the scene, saw his brothers, saw his Israeli army, saw his king all there quaking in their boots, and he said, this cannot be. That uncircumcised Philistine, giant or no giant, That Goliath will fall as the lion and bear have fallen before me. One smooth stone in my sling will bring him down. Let me go. And his brothers mocked him as being arrogant and foolish. They told him to go back and tend the sheep. Treated him as if he was some young upstart punk. And he said, no, really, I I would go. And they brought him before Saul. The king and Saul set him up with a suit of armor and a sword. And ultimately he said, no, let me go with the weapons the Lord has been pleased to use in the past. As a shepherd boy with a sling and a bag of stones, he went out to face the Philistine army that the entire army of Israel would not face. To face that great giant that no doubt had slain hundreds of men, maybe more that had stood defying God. And David could not allow the uncircumcised Philistine to stand one more day defying God. Much like Paul in the Athenian square was provoked by their worship of idols. David was provoked by this blasphemy of God and by the blasphemy of God's army stopping short when God commanded them to go to war. 
And a boy named David rebuked all of Israel, stepping out in faith, slain that giant Goliath twice over with a rock sunk in his forehead and then taking Goliath's own great sword and chopping off his hoary head, as the tale goes, as it's told, and lifting that up. There's a great ancient depiction of this in artwork where little David is there with this massive head held up by the hair. And then the whole Philistine army was routed as Israel's army found its heart. May each one of you be as the boy David, full of faith, marching us to war. May we not stand in our camp, quaking in our boots, before giant atheist, giant agnostic, giant Big Bang cosmology, giant evolution, giant Roman Catholicism, giant Islam, giant China virus, giant democratic tyranny. May we march to war, trusting in the God who created the cosmos to slay giant Satan and all who serve him with one little word, as Luther wrote, right? One little word shall fell him. The word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword, mightier than a stone in a sling, mightier than a sword from the sheath. The word of of God, able to make men wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. How would they hear without a preacher? How would they preach unless they are sent? The Philistines, descendants of Misraim, who would be the enemies of God, routed by the boy named David. Genesis Chapter 10, verses through 19, the sons of Canaan, the sons of Canaan, who we know are ultimately those who make up the Canaanites, the sons of Canaan, who would become those who reside in the land that Israel would go in to take. One particular family from the son of Canaan, I would point out, is the family of Sidon, the son of Canaan, went north and is related to the Hittites and the Lebanese, and the Sinite. Many people believe the Oriental peoples descended from the Sinites. Let's hit the pause button on the Sinites or the Sino nation. Pastor John MacArthur comments on the descendants of the Sinites saying, what about the Oriental people? Most of the evidence connects the heritage of Asian people to the descendants of Ham. Look at verse 17. At the end of the verse, Sinite, S-I-N-I-T-E. When we talk about American-Chinese relations, what do we call those? We call them Sino-American relations. Why do we call them Sino-American relations? Well, the word Sin, S-I-N, is a common word in the Orient. There's a dynasty, the Sin dynasty. It is a word that means purebred. Many emperors used sin as a title. There is the study of China. Do you know what it's called? Sinology. And so it is possible that they came from Ham. But I'll tell you this, they came from Noah's family, regardless of which son they came from. We know they came from Noah's family. They too can put on their bumper, my family survived the great flood. There's a Chinese scholar in Grace Community Church who keeps giving me lessons, says Pastor MacArthur, in Chinese language all through the book of Genesis. 
If you checked out a little while ago because it's genealogy, check back in, please. You want to hear this. So this Chinese language expert is giving Pastor MacArthur certain lessons on Chinese. He keeps giving me lessons in the Chinese language all through the book of Genesis and showing me how the Chinese letters, Chinese letters are really pictures, prove their connection. They have words that are connected that demonstrate in pictures the story of the Garden of Eden, the serpent, the tree, Adam, Eve, the whole thing. One of the ones that's very interesting that I just discovered is the Chinese word for ship. So you've seen Chinese writing, right? It's not A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They're little pictures. I cannot imagine learning that as a child. I mean, cursive was tough enough. But the picture for ship is noteworthy, says Pastor MacArthur. The Chinese figure for ship, it's not really a word, it's a figure. Let me pull now another resource, ICR. The Institution for Creation Research adds this. During the invention of the uh, pictographic language, creating pictographic words involves selecting picture symbols that were relevant and meaningful to whoever invented those written symbols. But what motifs would signify meanings that the ancient Chinese would portray about 4,500 years ago? What ideas were familiar to those who invented China's original written language? Think about that. Since Chinese civilization, since Chinese civilization began soon after the Tower of Babel fiasco, the first Chinese settlers still had a fresh memory of mankind's origins. From creation week to the dispersion of the languages at Babel, thus they not only knew the history highlights in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, but they would also have regarded those same events as important in human history and experience. It is unsurprising, therefore, that many of the picture symbol characters in the ancient Chinese language match the thinking of a soon-after-Babel people who retained important memories of historic events reported in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. ICR goes on. These creation through Babel events observed in Chinese pictographs include many themes and associations that readers of Genesis will recognize. God the creator, creation of heaven and earth, including a garden, man made from earth, man with stewardship responsibilities, warning provided by God, hand in a tree, man and woman as demonstrating completeness, covetousness involving trees and a woman. So their word for covetousness depicted in a picture, involves trees and a woman. Temptation represented by garden, trees, and the devil. Death involves hands, tree, and mouths. Hands, tree, mouth is death. Thorns indicate weeds and punishment. Alienation shown through man, woman, and garden. So to be alienated, the Chinese word, man, woman, and garden, because that's what cut us off from God. Goodness, goodness involves a woman and seed. Goodness, a woman and seed, because God's goodness, His promise in that Proto-Evangelion, that first gospel message in Genesis 3.15, is that the seed of the woman. Sacrifice is represented by God, hand, and blood. God made a sacrifice of a lamb to cover their sins that they might not leave the garden naked. A sacrifice is represented by God, hand, and blood. Lord is designated by God and blood. Me plus sheep equals righteousness. Trust 
slash dependence is represented by God covering a couple with clothing. Violence is shown by an elder brother with a mark. Cain was marked. Why? Because he violently murdered his brother Abel. Flood involves universal water. And universal is conveyed by the number eight, united, and earth. Get that. Flood involves universal water, and universal is conveyed by the number eight, united, and earth. What could that possibly refer to? Eight people united together, saved from the population of the whole earth. Boat is illustrated as a vessel or container and eight people. That's a boat. A vessel or container and eight people. Is that an accident in a language created 4,500 years ago, shortly after the flood? No, it is not. Mankind plus one mouth slash speech equals a type of unity. Babel, chapter 11. Yet that unity combined with weeds, which depict the curse, equals ambition. Nimrod and what took place with his people in that first kingdom in Babel. And that ambition plus clay slash bricks equals a tower. <laughs> so ambition plus clay and bricks equals a tower in the Chinese language. Rebellion slash confusion is represented by a tongue. And the list of correlations goes on. A few visual examples of this Genesis-relevant pattern follow, but note that there are many more documented and scholarly sources. And I, I saw all the pictures and beheld them. And by the way, I saw the pictures of the city of Kalal that's been dug up and some of it rebuilt and this great winged bull that no doubt was worshipped there. The Word of God is the true history of mankind. Whether it speaks to Adam and Eve being our first parents or the flood bottlenecking the genetic code, what do we find when we study DNA? We find that it supports the Word of God. Whether it speaks of Adam and Eve and their descendants, ultimately on this ark, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives and all the nations coming from them and one language. They had one language, then became all the languages. Linguistically speaking, all the languages are related, say the language science experts. Or whether we look actually at the characters that make up the Chinese alphabet and find that they depict the account of Genesis chapters 1 through 11, their words reveal their experience of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. To God be the glory. In Genesis 10 verse 20, it says, These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, in their nations. Praise God. Now we have just a little bit left with Shem. Ham was the pregnant point. We'll close up quickly with Shem. And the children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxid, and Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxid begot Selah. Selah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begat Almadad, Shalef, Hazar, Maveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzzel, Dikla, Obel, Abimel, 
Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling place was from Mesha. As you go toward Sefer, the mountain of the east, verse 31. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, and their lands, according to their nations. So again, distinct languages, distinct lands, distinct nations. And that's a result of what's going to happen in chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel and the Lord dividing them out by confusing the languages. The children were born to Shem. From Shem comes Elam, who was the ancestor of the Persian peoples. Asher, who was the father of the Assyrians. Lud, who was father of the Lydians, who lived for a time in Asia. Manor and Aram, who was the father of the Arameans, who we also know as the Syrians. Arphaxid was the ancestor to Abram and the Hebrews from which ultimately Abraham would come. Jobab is mentioned, verse 30 I believe it is. Jobab may be the one we know as Job in the Old Testament. He's not Joe Bob or Bobby Joe. Jobab may in fact be Job. In verse 32 it says, These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. That's the summary statement, the end of the chapter. Martin Luther commented on Genesis 10 saying this, We have reason to regard the Holy Bible highly and to consider it a most precious treasure. This very chapter, even though it is considered full of dead words, has in it the thread that is drawn from the first world to the middle and to the end of all things. From Adam... The promise concerning Christ is passed on to Seth, from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Shem, from Shem to Eber, from whom the Hebrew nation received its name as the heir for whom the promise about the Christ was intended in preference to all other peoples of the world. Hence, one must consider this chapter of Genesis a mirror in which to discern that we are human beings, are namely creatures so marred by sin that we have no knowledge of our own origin, not even of God himself, our creator, unless the word of God reveals these sparks of divine light to us from afar. This knowledge the Holy Scriptures reveals to us. Those who are without them live in error, uncertainty, and boundless ungodliness, for they have no knowledge about who they are and whence they came. Oh, what a precious treasure the entire Word of God is, but in particular the book of Genesis, the book of origins, the historic count of the creation of the heavens and the earth, all life in it, the fall of man, the judgment of God upon mankind, a global flood, and the nations the nations from whom ultimately Christ will descend from Adam all the way down through Mary and Joseph to come to save us from our sins. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious account, for this grand genealogy, this table of nations. We pray, Father, that our faith would increase, that our hope would increase, that our joy would increase as we see your wisdom, as you work all things according to the counsel of your will, including the establishment of the nations of the earth, ultimately to bring about the incarnation of your Son and the redemption of sinners for your own glory. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.